We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, three passages were read from the Bible. Psalm 95, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, and Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for tonight and the opportunity that we have to be here in this room in your presence. Thanks for these songs that you've given to us. Thanks for your word, Lord. God, all of this is for you because you deserve it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, all three of our scripture readings have this in common. They're all about worship. Just start at the end. The last sentence of Luke's gospel that Chris read to us. The very last sentence. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Joy filled public worship. That was kind of the overwhelming response to the resurrected Christ. Throughout the Gospels, as you encounter people encountering Christ, time and time again, that's their response. Now, it is kind of funny because at the beginning of the scene, they're scared to death. In verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. And this is just not something we normally do. After my grandmother had died, if three days later the family's together and suddenly Momo is in the room, this would obviously impact many of us in the same way. So Jesus, he he gets the disciples to calm down and he tries several different techniques. First, he shows them that he's got scars and he says, hey, I'm I'm physical, I'm not a ghost. And then they're still kind of wound tight. So he says, do you have anything to eat? He figured if they could just munch on something together, they would chill out for a minute. You know, some people just need to have that experience. So after Jesus gets them to calm down, he tells them that because of his suffering, and his death, and his resurrection, in verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now that's a reason for joy, forgiveness. That this free gift of God, that he doesn't hold stuff against us, it makes sense. And when, when these guys who are, who are a part of this experience, when they realize that the creator of heaven and earth, the only true God, when they realize that he had taken their sins into his body, all of our pride and wickedness, that he had taken it into himself and he had suffered on our behalf and it killed him 
And he rose from the dead. And now instead of offering us revenge, he offers us forgiveness. So you know how they responded? They worshiped him for all he's worth. Now we're here tonight, all of us, for lots of different little reasons. But there is something that we all have in common, and it's this. We are not here tonight because we're good people. We didn't work our way into this room. We might be dressed up for church. But when we really hold ourselves to account and we look deep down into our interior life, from the oldest person to the youngest person in this room, when it comes down to motives and secrets and passions and failings, it's like Victor Hugo said about Jean Valjean and Les Miserables, there is a secret monster in all of us, a dragon that gnaws with a thousand teeth. Deep on the inside, there's a hydra that crawls around at the bottom of our soul. And when we catch a glimpse of our sinister foundations, whether it's because somebody pushed all the right buttons or it was the perfect confluence of circumstances, when we catch a glimpse of what's really down in there and we realize that we are far more wicked than we've ever imagined, but at the very same moment, here is Christ offering us forgiveness. This is the passage that Alan read, right? To the very people who had murdered the living God. The very people whose monster had climbed to the surface. Forgiveness is offered. Now, when we realize those two facts exist simultaneously, the bottomless depth of our sinfulness and the endless devotion of our maker, when we put those two things together, that ought to produce worship. That ought to produce joy. And, and that's how Luke ends his story of the, of the life of Jesus. Think about this. For about 20 years, he's been telling the story of Jesus' life before he writes it. And when he finally does get around to inscribing it, the last thing he says is that, you know, when all is said and done, what Christ has done to us, he's turned us into people who worship him with joy. And that is right at the heart of all things new. Tonight's a celebration. And, and no matter how giddy I am in the inside because we've lived in Birmingham now for seven months or so and, and there's a whole group of people who've been invested, no matter how giddy we are about all of that, there is a fact that eclipses that. And it is this. This celebration that we're having tonight, it is not about our achievement. It is not about the start of a new church. Ultimately, the celebration of tonight is this. We have come together because God 
has become a human and died for our sins and rose from the dead. So we can all relax. There's nothing to prove. We can't do anything tonight that would make God love us anymore. There's nothing you can do tonight that when you leave here, God's going to say, oh, better. Way to go. You get promoted to corporal. Or, uh, that, why? Why can't we do anything? Because God already loves us infinitely. I mean, he can't, it's not that you can't make him love you anymore. It's that there is no more love he can give. So there's nothing to prove. We don't have anything to prove to each other. We don't have anything to prove to this community. And we don't have anything to improve to our God. Did you hear the little girl who, who read at the very beginning? Now that's Spencer, my daughter. She's the stuff, all right. Listen again to the very first part of what she read. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And then the first song that we sang tonight, Robert led us, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. That's Spencer's song. That's Psalm 95. And it's a really important passage in Scripture. In fact, when you go back to Luke's gospel, and remember it says right at the very end, they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. That word worship, it's loaded. Because these people that it's talking about, they're observant Jews. And worship means a very particular thing to them. It's not just that they had a hop, skip, and a jump on the way home, and they said, thank you, Jesus, Uh, you know, this is great. They did a very specific thing. They went to the temple, and they blessed God. Now, for an observant Jew 2,000 years ago, there had been thousands of years of cultural heritage that had programmed them how to worship God. And the fountainhead of that was Psalm 95. It's one of, it is perhaps the most programmatic psalm when it comes to how and why we worship God. Look, look at it with me real quick. If you have a Bible, look at Psalm 95. If not, I'll read it. In verse 1, notice how their body is involved. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. It takes a body to sing and to make a noise. Look, look down at verse 6 where it says they bow down and they kneel. What I want you to see here, we don't have time to go all into Psalm 95 tonight, but this is true. Jewish worship was full-bodied. Think more, instead of an over-the-mountain proper worship service, think an Auburn football game. Jewish worship was full bodied look what it says in verse one make a joyful noise and then again in verse two make a joyful noise not only was Jewish worship full-bodied it engaged the emotions joy 
Think about what God has done so much that it produces in you a joy. Look down at verse 6. It talks about bowing and kneeling. And in verse 7, it talks about submitting. What, what the psalmist is telling us here is that not only does worship involve your body and your emotions, but it also involves your will. You have to choose in your will to submit, to change your life, to yield to God, to say, God, I bend and bow before you and your plan. See, it's Jewish worship. It's about the body. It's about the emotions. It's about the will. And then when we look down at verse 7, the end of verse 7, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. Part of what's going on here is that he's saying to them, when you hear the word of the Lord, you need to listen and to understand it and you need to take in God's message and not miss what he's saying. He's saying your mind and your intellect and your ability to grasp and understand, that has to be a part of it. One of the things, Psalm 95 says a lot of things, but one of the things it teaches us is this, and the disciples knew this when they left Jesus' presence worshiping, and it's this, to worship, is to ascribe ultimate worth and to engage your whole body while you're doing that. It's not a mindless ritual. You can't attend a church service and sing the songs and kneel and pray and do all of the stuff and not worship. To worship is to ascribe ultimate worth to something. And while you're doing that, you have a full-bodied, a full-being engagement. This was Jewish worship. In other words, if God is the God revealed in Jesus Christ, if that is true, these disciples, if that is true, if our maker is our chief lover, now there's a reason for joy-filled worship. When we realize that our God, the one who makes us and knows our secret thoughts, when we realize that, and we realize that in the midst of that, he loves us infinitely more than anything we can ever imagine, then we see that the only appropriate response is celebration, a party, sheer unadulterated worship because our maker is our healer. Here's the one, here, this is one of the true differences between innocuous civic religion and true Christianity. You see, when a society is historically Christian, then civic religion will have a form of Christianity. But the form fails to penetrate all the way down into the whole being. In other words, at best, when you have civic religion, our faith and our reason tell us that God is worthy of praise. And we have no problem saying that or singing that or admitting that. In fact, if we didn't in this culture, there's a certain amount of social pressure. 
But true Christianity goes way beyond admitting and recognizing that. See, true Christianity goes to tasting and seeing, to being gripped all the way down in the core of your being that our maker is our healer. He's our lover. This is one of the great problems in our culture is our nonchalant approach to the Lord of the cosmos. Now, certainly, if we understand that the suffering and the dying and the rising of Christ in Luke 24 is the same God spoken of in Psalm 95, if we realize that that's the same God, if that is true, then our worship should be full-bodied too. It should be an immersion in God's splendor. And worship should be this thing we do in which we get lost in wonder, love, and praise. But we live in a super-hyped culture. And it's difficult for us to take the immensity of God seriously. We're so well-traveled. Our food and our wine are so excellent. Our lives are so busy. They're so highly technicized. We're so scandalously superficial and extremely mobile that we have lost the ability to stand amazed because we've seen Steven Spielberg movies. And it takes something from us. And we're sophisticated. But worship, Christian worship, is a joyful celebration with your whole being, your mind, your emotions, your body, your will, all fully engaged in the beauty of the resurrected Christ. This is not cold, formal, emotionally locked up civic religion. Now, all of this talk about worship, let let me just back up and draw one implication that is vital for all things new. When we gather on Sunday evenings to worship God, the reason for this service is very simple because God deserves to be worshiped. Now that's what we're doing in this room. We're not trying to do anything else tonight. We're not trying to become a big church. We're not trying to reach out. Tonight, we have gathered in this room because there is a God who is our lover and became human and died and suffered in his body for our sins. And that God deserves for us to come into this room and to do our very best at working together to worship him. Everything is due to him. God is the object of what we're doing here. We are the actors in a drama. Robert is like the director, but there's only one in the audience, and it's God. And Robert is up here, and he's telling us, okay, you read this, and you say that, and we're all on the stage. If we could just switch this whole thing around. We're all on the stage, and God himself alone is in the audience. Not my kids, not my friends, God is in the audience of what we as a group are doing tonight. We're here to work. 
And part of what that means is that the purpose of a worship service for all things new is not for our church to get more people. It's not so that we can be seen as successful in the world's eyes. The entire reason for worship is because Jesus Christ deserves it. He deserves for us to get together every single week without fail and stand before him and offer him our hearts. We're accepting the baton handed off from another time zone that ended their worship service at 6. And we're picking up that baton and we got this hour in however many minutes. We signed up for it and we're going to serve it. And when we're done, we're going to hand it off to Jakarta or wherever else they're picking up. And you know what? For 2,000 years, that baton hasn't been dropped. And tonight... We're picking up on that baton. We're joining in with the redeemed throughout time. And we are standing before God. Why? For only one reason. He deserves it. He deserves for us to stand and kneel and sit and pray prayers that were written for us hundreds of years ago because they're a lot better than anything you can make up on the spot. And he deserves for us to make up stuff on the spot because we got to try it. We got to ride a tricycle sometime. And he deserves for us to sing old geezer songs and new hip kind of faddish thin songs. He deserves for all of that kind of stuff. Why? Because he's Christ. And so if you invite your friend to worship on Sunday evenings at All Things New, and your friend says, why should I go to church with you on Sunday evenings? What's that all about? You can tell your friend, All Things New, Sunday nights, to worship your maker. That's why. That's the whole purpose of this gig. Go back to this passage in Luke. Luke chapter 24. Look again at verse 46. And Jesus said to them, Thus it's written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're witness of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now God is the only object of this worship service tonight. So everything that we've put in this worship guide is designed to pull your imagination, your thoughts, your emotions, to pull them up to God. And when you go home tonight, if you're talking to your friend and your friend says, well, how was it? How was worship? And you're tempted to say, well, I like the music or I didn't like the preach. Well, no, that wouldn't ever cross your mind. Just remember, you got it all wrong. You're not the object of this thing. Who gives a rip what you get out of this? This isn't for you. Unless you say it's for you to give your creator. See, the real question is, how was worship tonight? I think God was pleased. It was good. We sang good. We listened hard. We prayed with our guts. We sought him in our imaginations. Now, I'm not saying you won't get anything out of a worship service. I'm just trying to say what's primary and what's secondary. I'm just trying to say that there's a lot of confusion in America today on what the purpose of gathered worship is all about. Christ calls us to witness, to evangelize, to share our faith. It's right there in that passage. 
But notice, that passage is not the end of Luke's gospel. Evangelism is not the end of this gig. The end of this gig is worship. The last sentence is not go out and share. The last sentence is, and they worshiped him with great joy. That's where this thing ends. There's a pastor in Minnesota. His name is John Piper. I named my dog after him (laughs) as an honor. And the first time I met him, I told him. And he was not as impressed as I was. (laughs) He put it this way. The first page of a great book. Missions, evangelism, telling other people about Jesus, is not the goal, the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Missions begins and ends in worship. Here's what I'm saying. Evangelism is a means. Worship is an end. And when you turn worship into a means, you make it into an idol, and everybody suffers. That's confusion. All things new takes witnessing and mission seriously. It gets our money and our time and our imaginations and our best skills and our best gifts, but our weekly gathering is for God's sake. Because he deserves it. And if we get good at worshiping together. Now we're just starting tonight. We kind of got on the little bus going to kindergarten. But if we can stick it out and get good at this thing. You know what? People will be attracted to it. If the focus of our worship service is God. People will be attracted to it. But that's not our goal. That's not the purpose. That's just lanyap. You know Louisiana speak? A little something extra. When worship is turned away from Jesus and becomes a performance or a means to the end of evangelism, it's idolatry. And it's wrong. And like I said, good worship is evangelistic, but it's not the primary goal. The Bible never tells us to gather together and to do this thing so that our friends can hear about Jesus. Now, this is exactly what happened in Alan's passage of Scripture. Do you remember the story? They're on their way to the temple. What were they going to the temple to do? It wasn't a bake sale. They didn't do that kind of stuff at the temple. Look what it says in verse 6. This guy comes up and he needs help. And Peter and John, they don't have any money to help him. But they had waited and they had been clothed with power. And so it says that they say to this crippled man, silver and gold, I don't have any of that. But in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And and they took him by the hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And look at this. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, 
walking and leaping and praising God. You see, when Christ comes to us in our loss and in our fear, when Christ meets us right in the middle of circumstances that crush us beyond all reason, when Christ comes to us in the middle of a grand canyon of grief that is laid across our souls, and in those moments when we open our lives up to Christ, to the creator, to the maker of the world, we discover that he is more immediate and in those moments he is more present than any set of beliefs or any civic observance. And we discover in those moments that he is not only greater than we ever imagined, he is more gentle than we could have ever, ever imagined. And in those moments, we realize he deserves every week for us to gather together with other people and to sing his praises. So if anyone asks you, how was worship? The question is not, how was worship to you? The question has got to be, how was worship to God tonight? How's all things do, new doing? Are they doing something that honors God? So here we go. The resurrection of Jesus Christ results in the worship of Jesus the Christ. And worship, when we really do it, when we ascribe ultimate worth to Christ and engage our whole body in that process, it will compel us to witness. And when we witness, it'll lead us right back to worship. So who is all things new? We are a community centered around Jesus Christ. And like the first disciples, our experience of the resurrected Christ results in joyous Public, corporate, weekly worship. And out of that worship, we are driven into the world to witness and to do all of the other things that come along with being the church until Christ returns. And we end where we started. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God.